my name is Reggie. My name is Chris. And we like to bring you some weird comics history sporadically on Tuesdays from time mm-hmm. to time. <laughs> uh, you can find us on Tuesdays at chrisandreggie.podbean.com and every other day, actually. And you can also pick us up <laughs> on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and for $2.98 plus postage and handling. Yes, today it's Weird Comics History, episode number 26. This is Classic Comic Book Advertisements, The Return, or Redheads number two. As we like to call it. <laughs> yes, uh, now our first installment of the uh, of the advertisements was back in Weird Comics History, episode number 19. Classic comic book advertisements available in the archives. Now we'll jump right into it here with our first one. We're going to talk about uh, an old favorite to a lot of folks, Grit. Now, uh... Who could resist the entrepreneurial lore of a goofy kid surrounded by sweet merchandise yelling, Look, fellows, you could win your choice of neat prizes free regularly, plus as much as $1 to $6 cash every week. If you're a boy 12 years old or older, you could be a happy, prosperous grit salesman. Now, in bold type, the ad would promise grit sells for $0.20 per copy. You keep $0.07 profit. And over 30,000 boys make money and get dandy prizes without one cent cost. Now, this promoted itself as America's first family, uh, I'm sorry, America's favorite family newspaper, and consisted of news and stories, sports and comics, recipes, and lots more. Despite this, most comic fans will admit that they've never actually seen a copy of Grit <laughs> yeah. or know a single soul who's read it. And, and I mean, I, I hang out in the in the uh, in the dusky back rooms of right. You're in the bins, <laughs> books. right? Yeah. Yeah, and I I've never ever seen a copy of Grit. Now, this publication was founded way back in 1882 as the Saturday edition of the Williamsport, Pennsylvania Daily Sun and Banner. Uh, In 1885, the name was purchased for $1,000 by a 25-year-old German immigrant named Dietrich, was it Lamady? Lamady. Lamady. He established a circulation of 4,000 during the first year. That's a pretty nice jump. Absolutely. Lamedy was born February 6, 1859 in Goshausen, Germany, one of nine, <laughs> nine children of Johannes Dietrich and Caroline Stupfen Lamedy. The uh, family moved to Williamsport in 1867, where Johannes died of typhoid fever on January 1, 1869. To support the family, Dietrich, his sister, and his older brothers quit school. At age 10, Dietrich began working as an errand boy, earning a weekly salary of $3 in the office of a local German language weekly, which was the Beobachter, literally the observer. Uh, Eventually, he became his own small-time printer publisher, almost certainly a hand-operated rail press for small quantities, pamphlets and stuff like that. Uh, At 18, Lamedy began printing theater programs and a four-page ad brochure, The Merchant's Free Press. In the summer of 1880, he did camp news for the Pennsylvania National Guard, and he married the following year. Now, in 1882, Lamedy became the ad compositor and assistant composing room foreman for the Daily Sun and Banner. That same year, Grit began as the paper Saturday edition, typeset by Lamedy. He left the Daily Sun in 1884 to launch the Weekly Times as a daily, but uh, finances and the health of the owner led to the Times to cease publication. Now, with two children and no job, the 25-year-old Lamedy once again became a publisher. He teamed with two partners and bought the Times equipment plus the great name and goodwill. Uh, the first year of publication was one of adversity and uncertainty. Grit owed uh, more than uh, it was worth, and seven business partners came and went. Uh, Lamedy decided to interest new subscribers with contests and drawings. He printed coupons in his newspaper, offering readers chances to win such prizes as a piano, a gold watch, a marble-topped bedroom suite, a rifle, and a silk dress. Uh, His partners thought the ideas were impractical and costly. One threw up his hands in horror at the idea of more debts and announced that he was through with the enterprise. Yeah, I mean, this was really one of the first times such... Prizes have been offered, you know, sending... These are big prizes. And and, and then and now, you know, a gold (laughs) watch, a marble. I mean, this this is not your uh, typical grit dandy prizes that we saw later on. This isn't vampire teeth. Yeah, but the the idea of doing this is really, you know, clipping coupons and, you know, redeeming them. But this is really the first time you start to see that, at least at a commercial, you know, uh, mass 
production sure. since. Uh, Lamedy traveled throughout North Central Pennsylvania using a lottery to simulate statewide circulation of grit. He convinced many small store owners and news agents to carry the publication, tack flyers to buildings, fences, and trees. He hired boys to deliver circulars to all homes in the region. After his week on the road, he returned to the paper's office and slept on a folding cot to ensure that his publication be shipped on Saturday mornings and that the Williamsport edition was ready for Sunday morning deliveries. It certainly paid off because, as mentioned, he increased grit circulation to 4,000 during his first year. That's a big jump from basically nothing at all. Sure. Uh, in 1886, Grit boasted a weekly circulation of 14,000, and all of its bills were paid in cash. With a $400 surplus, Lamedy and his partners shook hands, patted themselves on their backs, and gave themselves raises from $12 to $15 a week. <laughs> Those fat cats. Anyway, <laughs> by, by 1887, circulation was 20,000. The partners ordered their first new, new newspaper perfecting press. That's a press that prints two sides at the same time. Uh, at a price tag of $8,000, which was big money in 1887. Absolutely. That's no joke. Uh, in 1894, one member of the art department was the 16-year-old C.W. Cowles, later famed as the creator of the long-run comic Hairbreadth Harry. This is where that girl gets tied to the railroad tracks by a guy with a mustache and a top hat thing began. It was, was in this comic strip, Hairbreadth Harry, yeah. How about that? Now, a grit displayed news and features aimed at rural America and climbed to a weekly circulation of 100,000 by 1900. Uh, yeah, following an editorial policy outlined by Lamedy during a banquet for grit's employees said, always keep grit from being pessimistic. Avoid printing these those things which distort the minds of readers or make them feel at odds with the world. Avoid showing the wrong side of things or making people feel discontented. Do nothing that will encourage fear, worry, or temptation. Whenever possible, suggest peace and good will toward men. Uh, give our readers courage and strength through their daily tasks. Put happy thoughts, cheer, and contentment into their hearts. Now, while intro introducing such innovations as national newsboy delivery and direct mail, Lamedy uh, expanded his content to combine news, human interest articles, comic strips, sometimes filling up to 10 pages, puzzles, and serials in, fictional, in fiction supplements. This is the uh, Grit Story section. And uh, circulation would reach 300,000 by 1916. Uh, by the time of its 50th anniversary in 1932, 400,000 people bought the newspaper each week, increasing to 500,000 by 1934. Lomedy would retire in 1936 and would pass on October 10th, 1938. Yeah, so a half a million in the middle of the Depression. That's not mm -hmm. that's not small potatoes. Absolutely. Uh, uh, his son, George R. Lamedy, became the publisher and editor with grandson Howard Lamedy Jr. serving as Grit's production manager. Another son, Howard J. Lamedy, which was probably Howard Lamedy Jr.'s father, uh, was vice president. He was also a top executive with Little League Baseball. Grit went to a tabloid, a glossy-covered magazine format, in 1944. It was sold across the country by children and teenagers, many recruited by ads and comic books from the 1940s to the 1970s. Grit claims that one million children have sold it, some for a few weeks and some for ch several years, though they advertised only to boys until about 1969. A comical ad in Richie Rich comic books aimed to recruit more young salesmen, suggesting that Richie's father, Richard Rich, got his start as a businessman selling grit. Most kids saw these ads selling, for selling grit focused on the sales incentives. The ad never says specifically what you have to do to earn these incentives, just that they send free prizes <laughs> regularly. Ads contain drawings of sports equipment, walkie-talkies, camping gear, a harmonica, model kits, and an engraved ID bracelet, among lots of other swell gear. George Lamedy said among Dad's greatest joys of accomplishment was the army of business and industrial leaders who gained their first commercial experience, lessons in honesty and integrity, and the value of self-application by selling grit in their hometowns. In order to recruit young, uh, young street vendors, the business published small 12-page comic books, such as one titled, Grit Will Help You As Nothing Else Can. The storyline inside involves a young man receiving a leadership award from the local boys club. His friend Joe, envious of the lad's recognition, decides to improve his skills by becoming a grit paperboy. After becoming a successful grit salesman, Joe likewise receives a leadership award from the club and earns enough money to go to camp. 
These comics would conclude with testimonials by former Grit salesmen that had made good as adults. The most recognizable was film star Gene Autry. I'm, I'm, I'm just laughing because that exact thing happened to me, Chris. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I went. I was like, I got to get that leadership award. That's uh, what young boy doesn't want a leadership award from the local hey, boys keen. club? Yeah, it sure <laughs> is. <laughs> Grit was a pioneer in the introduction of offset printing. It was one of the first newspapers in the United States to run color photographs, with the first full-color picture of the American flag appearing on the front page in June 1963. At the time of the magazine's 75th birthday in 1957, there were three editions, a Williamsport and Area edition with a circulation of 40,000, a Pennsylvania State Edition with 112,000 subscribers, and the National Edition, which reached some 728,000 subscribers. Yikes. At its peak in 1969, Grit had a weekly circulation of 1.5 million copies. And yet, and yet we've never seen We can't copy. see them. That's, that's <laughs> the amazing thing. Is so, you think there's so many of them out there. We've never seen one of them. I, I have to assume they're just not something anyone ever thought to say. Held you know? on to, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, they seem like they were like, a, you know, it was like a reasonable quality magazine. I don't really understand, sure. but. They've got to be out there somewhere. Someone out there in uh, listening land has got to be able to show us a real live grit. That'd be nice. (laughs) Now, uh, the Lamides remained at the helm of the family business until 1981. Stauffer Communications of Topeka, Kansas, which already owned Capper's Weekly, that was a national tabloid that began in 1879, and an audience similar to grit, kind of the rural audience, purchased the magazine in 1983. After 111 years in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, Grit moved to Topeka in 1993. The two magazines eventually were sold in 1996 to Ogden Publications, owned by Ogden Newspapers, based in Wheeling, West Virginia. Beginning with the September 2006 issue, Grit converted to an all-glossy, perfect-bound magazine format and a bi-monthly schedule. It now features more of a contemporary rural emphasis on content rather than nostalgic themes of the previous decade they might advertise you know, the, the latest tractor or, you know, some equipment or hmm. techniques for rural activities. I, I wish I could tell you what they might be, but that, <laughs> that's what I, that's the, the gist we were getting. Uh, now nationally, now nationally distributed by Time Warner, so they don't need to pay newsboys and basketballs <laughs> and brownie cameras anymore. And you can head over and get a subscription of your own today at grit.com. It's going on today, and yet we've still never still seen never a copy. Saw a copy. <laughs> I know. Now, let's go into some sales testimonials. Uh, now, despite this being America's favorite newspaper, finding people in the world that have seen, or better yet, sold the paper is not easy. Uh, we have a fellow named Lee from Roanoke, Virginia. He wrote into the modern grit to say the following. I assumed this paper was non-existent until, while browsing at a bookstore, bookstore recently, I found grit dressed in finery, unlike the grit I had known so long ago. It's been more than 60 years ago that I sold the grit newspaper, and I'm now approaching 76. When I found it on the newsstand, I bought a copy, subscribed for myself and my sister, and every two months I relived the life of a country boy. I was a bashful boy in Rose Hill, Virginia, so I didn't have much success, unlike the former carriers recalled in the January-February issue, but that and other boyhood business experiences helped when I turned to door-to-door sales in my retirement. I sold Watkins and Fuller Brush. That's the vacuums, right? Yeah, well, well the, the brush would be the, the brushes. I think Watkins was a vacuum. Mm, okay. Yeah. He continues, and became one of the few men to be, the, to be sales representatives for Avon. I made the President's Club and the Honor Society. So, though I doubt I sold many copies of Grit back in the day, I learned a valuable lesson. Don't let bashfulness stop you. I mean, this idea of the traveling salesman, the door-to-door salesman, it's just hmm. not a thing anymore. You know what it's, I mean? Yeah, it's people, so people, antiquated. Yeah, people will not just let you come in their house and throw dirt on the floor to vacuum it up anymore. That's just not like a thing. I dive under the couch when friends knock on the door. I, you, don't, I, you don't even answer the door. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, you you call you you like to call your wife and ask if you're expecting somebody. I'm the same way. You know, it's just like if, if there's nobody, if we don't expect anybody. The door doesn't get answered. That's all there is. Nope. No, we don't have that Entenmann's cake uh, hiding behind no. the uh, behind the toaster anymore. No. Uh, now beyond that one official reminiscence that uh, we dug up. The only other reminiscences about it that we could find are from the Straight Dope message board at boards.straightdope.com in a thread from 2010. 
There were a few testimonials in there, uh, and we will quote them as best as possible. <laughs> Zeldar from Tennessee remembers, yes, grammar school days when the late 40s, I had a route that I made one trip around before realizing I had been scammed, ended abruptly after. Very much like selling magazines to win silly prizes. Mama bought the only ones I sold. Bad memories. Strangely enough, my wife's brother-in-law used to write for Grit. Confederate Mule of Texas recalled, Yes, I did sell the Grit Weekly newspaper in 61 and 62. I sold delivered on Thursday night and Saturday morning. It cost 15 cents. I did make a little extra spending money. It was a great paper. I read it every week. The rest of my time, not in school, I worked for my dad. The one time I asked for pay, his answer was, You get three meals a day, a roof, and a place to sleep. When you need something, you get it. I will not pay you to earn your keep. You know, he was very correct in his evaluation of the subject. I got everything I needed and a lot of what I simply wanted. By the way, a couple of years ago, a couple or so years ago, I subscribed to the Grit magazine. It is no comparison to what I sold. I was very disappointed. I had the bag and all. I assume he means like the, the Grit news bag that you can actually see in some of the uh, comics ads. Uh, they furnished the forms for their payment and with an addressed envelope with every batch of papers. I do not remember how the money was sent. I did not have a checking account. I ain't given a thought to this small chapter of my life since then. That was one of those useless things my stepmother made me do. I wanted to be working with my dad, a mechanic, or fishing or hunting with him. I sold something in town, densely populated on Thursday night, in a rural area on Saturday. After a short period of time, there were folks I could count on to buy the paper every week. Couple more here. We got Dingo Gel Gringo, who was banned from this forum at one point. He wrote, I walked down the street in South St. Paul, Minnesota, in and out of businesses, and sold the newspaper. One beauty shop, I'd sell three or four to her various clients. I don't remember the price or the content, except that I'd read it. My other exposure at 12 years old was the Wall Street Journal. I didn't get a lot out of WSJ. <laughs> Go figure, you know, when yeah. I was 12, I was loving it. Oh, sure. <laughs> I kind of outgrew it, though. <laughs> Uh, we got Ron Duncan, also known as Ron425. He wrote, When I was a kid, about 12, I went to live with my aunt and uncle for a year or so in McGee, Mississippi, where my uncle worked at a dry cleaning store and my aunt worked at a TB hospital, also known as a sanitarium. Uh, now, while I was there, I sold grit newspapers, mainly to the elderly, since they were the only ones who had even heard grit papers. And up until, up until I started selling them, my customers had thought they'd went out of business. The town McGee wasn't that big, and my uncle had lived there for many years, and my aunt was a nurse at the hospital. So between the both of them and the people I'd met prior to selling the papers, I had approximately 200 customers, and I was a top paper boy. That's a lot of folks. Sure. Uh, I, was a, I was a top paper boy, if you will, for a good year, and as such, I had won fishing gear, camping equipment, bicycles, cameras, anything they gave away to their paper boys, and they offered a lot. I pretty much had won. My uncle would take my customers' papers to town to give my town customers as well as collect my money, and my aunt would take and deliver the hospital customers as well as collect the money. Almost every patient in the hospital bought my paper, mainly because it was around when most of them were young. Back then, 1969, the paper was a quarter. Not sure how much it is. Uh, not sure now how much it is, I should say. I did all right back then selling papers. I made enough to save, had won almost everything else I wanted, except for a BB gun, which my uncle gave me for Christmas, and was fun. I hope that answered yours and anyone else's questions. Signed, Ron Duncan. Well, it certainly was a pretty complete picture of uh, a guy that got his aunt and uncle to do his uh, work for him. I'll tell <laughs> right. you, you know what I mean? <laughs> What a cherry! What a cherry job that was! Just like Bob, you know, like you Girl just, Scout cookies. Yeah, take these to work, and, uh, and I'll get a bike out of it. But <laughs> so, what I find interesting, and like I say, these, I, you know, we really did look scouring for testimonials uh, online as much as I it, it possibly could, and sure. this, this is all that could be found. But it's interesting that one person felt that it was a scam. Yeah, which is essentially besides the fact that you know, I sent, I looked at everything in the comics as a potential scam. <laughs> uh, since it was never clear what the uh, exchange yeah, was, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. Uh, and they're still not clear. Like, what happened? Did you did you did a bike just show up at your house one day, or did you have to do you have to make X dollars? I don't know. We don't know the. Maybe uh, a tire came one week. A handlebar I'm... came the next. <laughs> keep, keep it up, kid. Well, I mean, if, so, I mean, if this kid did it in a year and he got 
uh, fishing pole. He got like he was able to get everything they offered. Right. Yeah, I mean, so th these things must have been coming pretty fast and you know frequently, I would think. But sure, uh, I don't know. But you know, definitely, I, I know you must have, Chris, at one time entertained the thought, right? I mean. <laughs> Well, this is uh the the grid ads kind of stopped in comics when I started picking them up, oh, and right. we had the uh, we had the Captain O, the okay. Captain Olympic stuff, uh, which is I think similar. I mean, because uh, they had the, those pages where you look over them and it's like, oh, I can get that right. you know, five inch TV or the and now, and now those had a specific exchange rate, right? Didn't they, they say did. specifically like sell like... fifteen items right, or exactly. sell five hundred items for the Nintendo or whatever? Yeah, there were also ads for greeting cards that were the same way, and I would think and like... wrapping paper yeah I was, I was like at least this is up front about how i'm gonna get my uh you know camera or whatever Your camping gear yeah <laughs> which, which would have done me a lot of good i'll tell you what chris I yeah really, for sure for sure sure did camp a lot as a kid yeah <laughs> uh anyway it was it, this is the allure of the uh comic book ad but we Absolutely. will be right back to tell you guys about another more aquatic hmm. or is it from the jungle Kelsey from Grit Magazine, and we have a reader-submitted question from Jason. Uh, besides chickens, what are some other types of livestock that would be good to start with on a small homestead? Uh, well, a next natural step would probably be with rabbits. Um, they're small, and you can contain them in, in hutches. Uh, you get great manure from them. You can harvest them for meat, and you can raise them for breeding stock or even fiber if you want to uh, work with fibers on your farm. Um, if you want to go for a little bit bigger, probably want to go with goats. Uh, they have really good personalities. You can also get meat and dairy from them. And they're known to clean up fence lines and pastures. They eat a lot of weeds. They clean up brushy areas. And uh, although you'll probably want to up your fencing power because they're known to uh, get out. And if you want to go a little bit bigger even, you could start with a flock of sheep. Um, you can harvest them for meat and fiber as well. Sheep or goats would be a really good next step for a medium-sized animal and for those trying to diversify livestock on their homesteads. And uh, good luck with your farming endeavors, Jason. everybody to talk about a comic book ad that I think people of a certain fans of a certain vintage know all about. Uh, every kid whose parents told them they could never have a dog was mesmerized by the comic book ads for sea monkeys. The ad suggested that we enter the world, wonderful world of amazing live sea monkeys, the real live fun pets you grow yourself. So eager to please they can even be quote trained unquote. <laughs> Each order promised these valuable supplies. Sea monkey growth food, feeding spoon, sea plasma, a magnificent fully illustrated owner's manual of sea monkey care. Feeding, raising, quote, training, unquote, and even breeding would be included in that manual. And mm. our famous growth guarantee in writing. Even. So you could go get your childhood <laughs> lawyer. If you had to. <laughs> uh, and now, it's worth mentioning that there was a time you could order a lot of pets through comic book ads, like squirrel monkeys and turtles. And yes, actual squirrel monkeys could be ordered through the yep. mail. That's right. Absolutely. Now, ant farms had been popularized in 1956 by Milton Levine, or maybe it's Levine. Uh, seeing an angle, Harold von Brunhut invented the brine shrimp-based product of the next year. That was 1957. Harold Nathan Brown, is it Brunhut? I would Brown say Brunhut, but I couldn't Brown be Hutt. sure. Yeah. Let's, let's do Brunhut. Uh, he was born uh, March 31st, 1926 in Brooklyn, New York. He lived in New York City until 1980 when he moved to Maryland. Harold added Vaughn to his name sometime before, uh, sometime in 1950s for a more Germanic sound, and so he could be more distant from his Jewish family. He held 195 patents for various products, which included X-ray specs, which captured the imaginations of new, newly adolescent boys for decades. Oh, yeah. The amazing, <laughs> the amazing sea monkeys we're about to discuss. Crazy crabs, which are 
basically. Well, they were they were hermit crabs. Actual hermit uh, crabs, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say they're basically, but no, no, they were, That's in right. fact, hermit crabs. Uh, <laughs> amazing hair-raising monsters. A card with a printed monster that would grow hair, which was actually mineral crystals, when water was added. Also, the invisible goldfish. <laughs> Imaginary fish that were guaranteed to remain permanently invisible. I've got a, I've got a garage full of them. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> They're great. A lot of fun. A lot of very relaxing. Yes, yeah, so my, uh, my, my invisible uh, squirrel monkeys are in there, too. Oh, right. uh, now, Braun Hutt uh, also raced motorcycles under the name The Green Hornet, and he managed a showman whose uh, act consisted of diving 40 feet into a children's wading pool filled with only one foot of water. I'd like to see that. Yeah. Uh, Braun Hutt also set up a wildlife conservation area in Maryland. Yeah, I mean, these, these you find these people that run these novelties, they're always like crazy vagabonds, right? Like adventurous yeah. types, like, you know, used to, used to <laughs> shoot a nickel thrown into the air, you know, from 30 paces. Uh, Von Braunhut knew that brine shrimp could undergo cryptobiosis during dry seasons. Cryptobiosis is an ametabolic state of life entered by an organism during inhospitable conditions. Basically like a, a forced hibernation. Yeah. You know? Uh, during cryptobiosis, all life functions are suspended until conditions improve. Brine shrimp are somewhat unique in that they can also produce dormant eggs that are waiting for water to wake them up, and that is the trick here. Von Braunhut collaborated with marine biologist Dr. Anthony D'Agostino to develop the proper mix of nutrients and chemicals in dry form that could be added to plain tap water to create an accommodating habitat for the shrimp to thrive. The animals sold as sea monkeys are an artificial breed known as Artemia nios, which is New York Ocean Science, formed by hybridizing different species of brine shrimp. Von Braunhut was granted a patent for this process on July 4th, 1972. Uh, they were initially called Instant Life and sold for 49 cents, but Von Braunhut changed the name to Sea Monkeys in 1962. The new name was based on the supposed resemblance of the animals' tails to those of monkeys and their saltwater habitat. Sea monkeys were intensely marketed in comic books beginning in the 1960s. They used illustrations by the comic book illustrator Joe Orlando. Let's learn a little bit about him. Joseph Orlando was born April 4, 1927 in Bari, Italy. His family would immigrate to the United States in 1929. Joe attended art classes at a neighborhood boys club where he when he was seven years old. I wonder if he won a leadership award. When he was <laughs> now, he continued there until he was 14, winning prizes annually in their competitions, including a John, John Wanamaker bronze medal. Uh, in 1941, he began attending the School of Industrial Art, was later the High School of Art and Design, where he studied illustration. There he met, among many other future comic professionals, Carmine Infantino, and they uh, remained close friends. While Orlando was still a student, he drew his first published illustrations. There were scenes of Mark Twain's The Prince and the Pauper for a high, for a high school textbook. After his high school graduation, Orlando entered the U.S. Army, and he was signed to uh, the military police. Uh, this was followed by 18 months in Europe. Yep, the old WWII. Mm -hmm. After his 1947 discharge, he returned to New York and began study at the Art Students League on the GI Bill. He entered the comic book field in 1949 when packager Lloyd Jacquet's, uh, Jacket assigned him to draw for the Catholic-oriented book Treasure Chest. This was a Chuck White story that paid $9 a page, which was a lot of money. Uh, Big money. At the Jacket Studio, he met fellow artist Tex Bladesell, and the two teamed later on many projects. In the early 1950s, he was an assistant to Wally Wood on stories for several publishers, including Fox, Youthful, Avon, and EC Comics, before becoming a regular staff artist with EC in the summer of 1951. He was earning $25 a page at EC. Not bad. Wild, yeah. EC, I mean, this is this is the 50s or late 40s, 50s, so it's not like it's 30s dollars, but that's a lot of money. Uh, sure. Still, after EC, from 1956 to 1959, he drew classics illustrated adaptations, including Ben-Hur, A Tale of Two Cities, and Rudyard, Rudyard Kipling's Kim. In addition to many contributions to EC's Mad from 1960 to 69, Orlando scripted the Little Orphan Annie comic strip beginning in 1964. He and Tex Bladesell worked on it together. For Warren Publications, black and white horror comics magazine Creepy, debuting in 1964, Orlando was not only an illustrator, but also a story editor on early issues. His credit on the first issue masthead read Story Ideas, Joe Orlando. 
Sales of Harold von Braunhut sea monkeys escalated considerably after Orlando drew a series of unusual advertisements visualizing the creature's enchanted and peaceful undersea kingdom. Uh, these showed humanoid animals that bear no resemblance to the crustaceans. <laughs> nothing, and, nothing at all. <laughs> and they, they didn't look like monkeys either. No, they didn't really know. They kind of looked like, I remember, <laughs> one of them had a crown, right? I don't know, I don't know what, what that was yes. about. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> no, many purchases were disappointed by the dissimilarity and by the short lifespan of these animals, which is three to six weeks at best. Most sea monkeys didn't last a week if they even hashed at all. I, I hear if you poured salt on them, they, they moved around a bit. Sometimes, you know, despite the written guarantee, I, I can tell you from personal experience, they, they don't turn into monkeys immediately, I'll tell you what. But uh, now, a colony is started by adding the contents of a packet labeled water purifier to a tank of water. This packet contains salt, a water conditioner, and some, and some brine shrimp eggs. After 24 hours, this is augmented with the contents of a packet labeled Instant Life Eggs, containing more eggs, yeast, borax, salt, soda, salt, borax soda, salt, some food, and sometimes a dye. That was later on. Shortly thereafter, sea monkeys hatched from the eggs that were in the water purifier packet. Growth food containing yeast and uh, spirulina is then added every few days. So actually, the first packet's eggs hatch, but the sec- it gives you the illusion that the second Packets eggs yeah, activated or something, and yeah. and then and then the, I think the idea is like the, the first packets die, and the second packets might live a little longer. <laughs> that's that's how that's how crazy this uh, brine shrimp scheme is. Uh, by putting eggs in both packets, the likelihood is that they will be shrimp alive when the second packet is, is dispensed and increased, therefore simulating instant life. Now we'll hop back to Joe Orlando for a bit. Uh, in 1966, Orlando and writer E. Nelson Bridwell created the parody superhero team, The Inferior Five. That was in Showcase number 62, June 1966, cover date. Orlando launched the Swing with Scooter series with writers Barbara Friedlander and Jack Miller in July of 1966. After 16 years of freelancing, Orlando was hired in 1968 by DC Comics, where he was the then the editor of a full line of comic books. These included Adventure Comics, all-star comics, Anthro, Batlash, House of Mystery, Plop, Swamp Thing, and The Witching Hour. He also scripted uh, several of those titles as well. In the late 1960s, Orlando hired Filipino artist Tony DiZuniga for uh, work on some of DC's horror titles. In 1971, Orlando and DC publisher Carmine Infantino traveled to the Philippines on a recruiting trip for more artists. Uh, Alfredo Alcala, Mara Mongo, Ernie Chan, Alex Nino, Nestor Redondo, and Jerry Talawak. Talawak. Talawak? One of them. Talawak? Okay. Sure. Uh, They were some of the Filipino uh, comic artists that would work for DC, particularly in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, you know, this is something that I've rarely seen written on, and maybe we got to do a uh, show about, is this Filipino wave that came in during this time that really did a massive amount of work for DC and also for some of the other smaller publishers. I know Charlton had a few, and I think Warren Mm -hmm. even employed some, but no one ever talks about them, but like they they were literally like the backbone of the you know, smaller titles, the Witch, Witching Absolutely. Hour and these other ones. Uh, it was huge, obviously done for a money reason, Yeah, for sure. But, uh, for sure. You know, it's, it's something maybe we should uh, peel that back and look into that. Uh, now, by 1980, Joe was made a vice president of DC Comics in charge of special projects. That included the creation of art for T-shirts and other licensed products, negotiating with such companies as American Greetings and Tops, working with editor Joey Cavallari and Looney Tunes Magazine, and supervising production of trading cards, Six Flags logos, DC character style guides, and other items. During the 1980s, Orlando began teaching at the School of Visual Arts, co- continuing as an art instructor there for many years. When Mad founder publisher William Gaines died in 1992, publishing company owner Time Warner positioned Mad under the purview of fellow publishing subsidiary DC Comics. After this shift, Orlando became the magazine's associate publisher. He was also involved in creating exclusive MAD products for the then-new Warner Brothers Studio store on Fifth Avenue at the same time. Though he retired from D.C. in 1996, he nevertheless maintained an office at MAD, where he worked on MAD cover concepts and other projects for the next two years. And Joe passed away in Manhattan, New York on December 23, 1998. Now back to the monkeys. Uh, Von Braun Hutt is quoted as saying, I think I bought something like 3.2 million pages of comic book advertising a year. 
it worked beautifully. He came to advertising comic books because the competitors squeezed sea monkeys out of the conventional toy market. Whammo was was flying higher than a kite with the Super Bowl and the hula hoop, and they took a risk on an instant fish. But the fish didn't work. The buyer at Sears Roebuck almost got fired because of it. So when I took my sea monkeys around after that, you'd think another ice age had happened. The doors that weren't open to begin with slammed shut in my face. So I went to comic books. I did 3.3 million pages of advertising per year. Now, in the 1980s, Von Braun Hutt developed several sets to be sold in toy stores. These included tanks of various sizes with magnified areas through which you could view your magical sea monkey. Which is actually how I ever used them was I, I picked them up from the toy store, I believe, twice. I actually, really? <laughs> I actually got suckered in twice at the toy store because I, I felt like it was being sold that, that somehow Toys R Us wouldn't steer me that wrong. Legitimized right? yeah, it, they yeah. legitimized <laughs> it. Uh, I believe I was able to get one sea monkey to live for a day. That was the result of two attempts. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, astronaut John Glenn would take sea monkeys into space on October 29, 1998, aboard the space shuttle Discovery. After nine days in space, they were returned to Earth and hatched eight weeks later, apparently unaffected by their travels. Similar tests done on earlier space missions yielded worse results, but those eggs were kept with other biological material and subjected to more cosmic rays. Uh, none of them turned into microscopic things or human torches, though, from what we know. From what we know. Okay, the official <laughs> the official report, Chris. Well, I'd like to see the data. That pebble in your garden, that's that's a sea monkey that, that turned be, into the thing. That could be a sea monkey <laughs> ready for clobbering time, yeah. Now for the wrinkle here. Uh, uh, now, despite his Jewish ethnicity, Von Braunhut had a close association with white supremacist groups, buying firearms for a Ku Klux Klan faction and regularly attending the Aryan Nation's annual conference. In the late 1970s, Von Braunhut developed and patented the Spring Whip Defense Mechanism, a spring-loaded rigid whip that telescopes out of its handle with the press of a button. When Von Braunhut was passing through security at LaGuardia Airport in 1979, his attache case was carrying six of these devices and it attracted attention, and he was arrested on illegal weapons charges. He wanted dismissal on the grounds that the Kyoga Agent M5, which was what it was called, was not a bludgeon and did not meet the criteria of any banned weapon at the time. The device was advertised as the answer to, uh, to if you need a gun but can't get a license, because it's a hornet's nest, it's a hornet's nest of piano wire steel springs inflicting excruciating agony on your assailant. One venue it was advertised was the newsletter of the Aryan Nations, an organization about which you can probably fill in the blanks. Uh, its founder and then leader was Richard Gernt Butler, who in 1987 was under indictment for sedition for allegedly plotting to overthrow the U.S. government. Butler sent out a legal fundraising appeal that included a brochure for the Cuyahoga Agent M5 and stated that the manufacturer has made a pledge of $25 to my defense fund for each one sold to Aryan Nation supporters. So this is a middling point, Chris, but I, I, I really want to make it. I mean, clearly, this guy's a jerk. You know, we're not... We're not this a bad is, dude. We are, we are not dude. clearing this guy from any bad doing, but it's been said that, uh, you know, Sea Monkeys directly funded the Aryan Nations, and in some sense, since he did give money to, the, to them, and he was profiting from Sea Monkeys, as well as sure. X-Ray Specs and Crazy Crabs and whatever else. Stands to reason. Uh, yeah. You know, some of that money did go there, but really what I think they're talking about is this specific campaign where, you know, a, a specific money earmark for each of these weird weapons. It's a bludgeon this, thing, yeah, it's weird, this whatever whip, it is. This, like, horrible whip that, that sounds really like a mutilator. I, it's gotta Brutal. be illegal. I gotta say, don't bring those on planes now. It's gotta be illegal, I think, in, in this world. I would hope. <laughs> anyway, anyway, you know, not making excuses for the guy, but I really think that this was the big funding, was, was through the Cayuga Agent M5, and not... Through sea monkeys. Not that I'm. Not that I have any love for sea monkeys. They burnt me two times. So. <laughs> Screw anyway. sea monkeys. Yeah. <laughs> now, speaking of the Spokane Spokesman Review in 1988, Butler described Harold von Brunhut as a longtime friend who quote has supported us for quite a few years. In fact, Brunhut appeared frequently at the yearly Aryan World Congress at Butler's Whites Only Compound in Hayden Lake, Idaho. Sometimes. 
as the lighter of the burning cross. Oh, that was nice. That's a nice, uh, you know, little feather in your cap. That's almost as good as a uh, boys club award, I think. <laughs> yes, yeah, a leadership award. Right. I, I was going to just check that off of uh, sentences I didn't plan on saying today. <laughs> right. Uh, list. <laughs> Now, Assistant U.S. Attorney Thomas M. Bauer said that in a 1985 weapons case against a member of the Ku Klux Klan, Grand Dragon, Gail R. Rausch von Braun Hutt was prepared to testify that he had lent Rausch about $12,000 so he could buy 83 firearms. Bauer said that von Braun Hutt was very pleasant and cooperative and brought some of his little toys along, including sea monkeys. Von Braun Hutt is quoted as saying that Adolf Hitler, quote, got a lot of bad press. Yeah, you really don't want to get those sea monkeys anymore, do you? You don't really, no, you don't really want to be involved with any sea monkeys at this point. Even the X-rays. I, l- I left a long enough pause in there so nothing could be cut out of this episode. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Uh, in 1988, in a 1988 interview with the Seattle Times. Vaughn Braunhut referred to the inscrutable, slanty Korean eyes of Korean shop owners and was quoted as saying, You know what side I'm on, I don't make any bones about it. Still, Vaughn Braunhut refuted allegations that he supported white supremacist groups later in life, but angrily avoided the questions entirely. Harold Vaughn Braunhut died on November 28, 2003 at his home in Indian Head, Maryland, following an accidental fall. You can still buy sea monkeys through your favorite toy store chains and online, online purveyors. Though now, you probably don't want to, and I wouldn't blame you for that one. Uh, I, I would like to say that they don't fund the Aryan Nations now, but I can't say that for sure. Uh, we couldn't. <laughs> we couldn't say that, but yeah, that's, uh, whew, that one ended a little, a little uh, That one spicy. got dark. Yeah. yeah. Uh, luckily, though, our next subject is light and airy. It's something everyone can rejoice and get along with, and it's all about war. talk about our last rad ad of the episode and this one uh chris this is one that really kind of got me when i was younger i'm not sure if, if you felt the same way this is uh well, yeah it, nearly all co- color comic books from the early 1950s to the mid 1980s carried these ads full page depictions of a great army battle occurring in four colors advertising a hundred piece toilet toy soldier set made of durable plastic each with its own base, packed in this footlocker toy storage box. The set also included tanks, jeeps, jets, and bombers. All four, depending on the age of your comic book, $1.25. Or perhaps you saw the ad for the 132-piece Roman soldier set for $2.98, which would detail an inside bar as having four generals mounted, 24 cavalrymen with spears and armor, four cavalrymen with banners, 16 spearmen with shields, 16 archers with bows, 16 slingers, four chariots with drivers, four working catapults. Which I think must be the reason that this price is higher than the other ones, right? Yeah, yeah moving parts. The only one with like a moving action to it, yeah. <laughs> they also included 16 pieces, pieces of ammunition, harmless for catapult, <laughs> 24 foot soldiers with broadswords and shields, and four, most importantly, four buglers. Oh, of course. I always wanted to be the bugler whenever I play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or, or maybe you saw the mind-boggling offer for the 204-piece Revolutionary War toy soldier set for $2.50, advertising two complete armies, the British Redcoats and the American Bluecoats, Relive again the famous battles of the American Revolution. Form your own battle lines. Fun for the whole family. A set that contained, along with 180 other pieces, 24 Mohawk Indians. Now, even kids who didn't care about war toys, which was kind of like me, I couldn't beat the bargains being offered here. Absolutely. Uh, some ads also featured special offers like a free chess set or extra deluxe toy sets available only for another buck or two. There were no images for these, but they could be checked off on the order form. And Chris, I remember like, 
this is one of those we always we talk about this like scrutinizing these ads for the for the grift you know yep. knowing it had to be ripoff but even i remember looking at these thinking to myself even if it's a ripoff you get it's so, only a couple bucks you get a, so <laughs> many toys for a couple of bucks you know what i mean <laughs> the sheer quantity uh, uh, really tips the uh, that tips really the tip it. you're like it says it's plastic you know we they, we got them dead to rights on the on the stand and the whatever yeah. But, it's not the cardboard ones, it's, exactly. it's the plastics. Well, look at what they get here. Yes, upon receipt of their 100-piece toy soldier set, these kids got a shoebox filled with filled in white paper that looked vaguely like a footlocker, 100 or more two-dimensional inch-and-a-half-tall plastic sculptures that did not stand on their own, but could be, view, but could be viewed only from one angle. Yeah. Uh, these are known as flats to toy collectors. 3D versions were created in the early 1980s. This led to many disappointed children who learned a valuable lesson at the end of a comic book advertisement. Was it that Cavet Emptor? Yes, Cavet Emptor. Yeah, let the is. buyer beware. Now, all these toys were impressed with the Hong Kong manufacturer's stamp, usually on the base plate, but distributed by various American companies, many of which were suspiciously located in the same area. We've got Joe's Lee Co. at Carl Place, Long Island, New York. Compix Incorporated at Murray Street in New York, New York. Uh, e. Joseph Cosman and Company in Hollywood, California. There was the Arrow Company, Madison Avenue, New York, New York. Honor House Products, Lindbrook, New York. Helen of Toy Co., nice name, in Regal That's Park. Clever. New York, yep, later in Comac, <laughs> Long Island, New York. Lucky Products Incorporated in Carl Place, Long Island, New York. Westbury, Long Island, New York. And later in Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> Five Star Toys, also Rego Park, New York, later Comac, Long Island, New York. Buy a Toy Corp in uh, Bronx, New York. And Model Expo Incorporated, Fairfield, New Jersey. They were the ones who hired, they offered the higher grade 3D sets later on. Yeah. And a few companies that didn't even have, that had addresses with no names. Uh, <laughs> 104 Kings Knights, 149, that was at Carl Place, Long Island, New York. 132 Roman Soldiers for $1.98, Carl Place, Long Island, New York. 132 Roman War Soldiers for all the doll 98 could be bought from Westbury, Long Island, New York. 116 Planes of All Nations for a buck and a quarter in Rockville Center, New York. 126 World War II Soldiers for 99 cents, also from Rockville Center, New York. And 204 Revolutionary War Soldiers for a dollar 98. Plus, it all place Long Island, New York. That's right. It's, it's like I get the feeling that these. Uh, importers had to stay on the run. Don't you get that feeling, say, Chris? Don't, yeah. don't, don't fly by nights leave? Don't they, <laughs> addresses? No, they just change names. Just name, uh, yeah. <laughs> there were a few ads for all for these toys, all very detailed, but of varying quality. The names of the artists for all but two have been lost to time. But luckily, it's uh, of the two best-remembered ads. The full-page ads for Roman and Revolutionary War toy soldiers were drawn by none other than legendary war comics artist Russ Heath. Yeah, uh, we're gonna have these pictures up on the blog, but you, you know what? You know, if you've seen these ads, you know what we're talking about. These are the big, really grand battle scenes. Like usually, like on a like, landscape. Yeah. Like you'd have to turn a comic to look. The, some of them were run yeah. like that. I mean, I, eventually they ran them in almost every size under the sun. But yeah, they're definitely the ones I know from those seventies that are uh, are the other orientation. So uh, now Russell Heath Jr. was born in New York City on September twenty ninth, nineteen twenty six. Raised in New Jersey as an only child, Russ recalled, "My father used to be a cowboy, so as a little kid, I was influenced by Western artists of the time. Will James was one, an artist writer. I had most of his books." Charlie Russell was my favorite because his work was absolutely authentic because he drew what he lived. Largely self-taught, Heath began freelancing for comics during summers while he was in high school. He penciled and inked at least two installments of the naval feature Hammerhead Hawley in Holyoke Publishing's Captain Arrow Comics, Volume 2, Number 2, in September 1942 cover date, and Volume 3, Number 12, that was in April 1944 cover date. Heath was, a Mon was in Montclair's high school's class of 1945, but it's unclear as to whether or not he graduated. In a 2004 interview, he recalls going into the Air Force in my senior year of high school in 1945 after having been put in an accelerated class so I could get through with high school. I almost made it, but then the Air Force called me, and in I went. He definitely joined the Air Force in 1945, and he would serve stateside for nine months. Russ drew cartoons for his camp newspaper. 
But due to a clerical error, he was on neither the military payroll nor any uh, official duty roster for a significant portion of his time. A uh, 2011 article in his hometown newspaper said that after a short stint in the military, Heath came back to Montclair, graduated from high school, got married, and started a family. While trying to get employed as an artist assistant, Heath was hired as the office gopher for a large Manhattan advertising agency that's Benton and Bowles. He earned $35 a week. Uh, he continued looking for work as an artist on his lunch hour. And in 1947, he landed a $75 a week staff position at Timely Comics. Initially, he worked at the Timely office, but eventually started drawing from home. Now, Russ remembers that his first published work for Marvel was a two-gun kid story, and it had to be one of these two. It was this, either the second two-gun kid story in Two-Gun Kid Number 5, December 1948, titled Guns Blast in a Thunder Pass, or the two-gun kid story in Wild Western Number 5, also December 1948, titled Two Guns Bark Along Terror Trail. And it's Heath's art on the kid cult story in that same issue. So one of those was his first. I'm not sure it matters, really. Yeah. Uh, Heath's first superhero story is tentatively identified as the seven-page witness story, Fate Fixed a Fight, in Captain America Comics number 71, March 1949 cover. Into the 1950s, Heath drew several Western stories for such timely comics as Wild Western, All Western Winners, Arizona Kid, Black Rider, Western Outlaws, and Reno Brown, Hollywood's Greatest Cowgirl. Hmm. He also expanded into other genres as Timely grew into Atlas Comics. He drew the December 1950 premiere of the two-issue superhero series Marvel Boy and scattered science fiction anthology stories in Venus, Journey into Unknown Worlds, and Men's Adventures. Uh, a little crime drama he did on the, in the pages of Justice, uh, some horror stories and covers for Adventures into Terra, Marvel Tales, Menace, Mystic, Spellbound, Strange Tales, Uncanny Tales, also the cover to Journey into Mystery Number 1. And, of course, the war comics for which he is, would become best known for. Uh, he's produced combat stories both for the wide line of timely war titles, such as Combat Kelly, G.I. Tales, and Marines in Action. Uh, and also the first issue of EC Comics celebrated Frontline Combat. That was August 1951 cover. This would have been, this would begin a lifelong friendship with Harvey Kurtzman. Uh, Russ uh, contributed to Mad Number 14 this is August 1954, illustrating Harvey Kurtzman's parody of Plastic Man. And thereafter, Russ uh, did uh, the first of many decades worth of war work for DC Comics, with Our Army at War number 23 and Star Spangled War Stories number 22. Both cover dated June 1954. Heath co-created with writer-editor Robert Kaniger the feature The Haunted Tank in G.I. Combat number 87. That was May 1961 cover. In a 1999 interview, Russ said, I didn't like The Haunted Tank in G.I. Combat as much. I liked less because there was always the same four characters. J.E.B. Stewart plus his three buddies. Virtually the same story every issue. He'd be talking to this ghost over and over again. <laughs> I couldn't believe kids kept wanting to look at it. Also with Kaniger, Heath co-created and drew the first appearances of DC's Sea Devils, about a team of scuba diving adventurers starting in Showcase number 27, August 1960 cover date. Several of Kaniger's characters were combined into a single feature titled The Losers, and their first appearance was as a group was with the Haunted Tank crew in GI Combat number 138, October to November 1969 cover date, drawn by Russ Heath. Various Heath drawings of fighter jets in DC Comics' All-American Men of War were the basis for pop artist Roy Lichtenstein's oil paintings, notably Blam. Heath became known for the authenticity of his military comics. He would buy uniforms, helmets, and radios and Army surplus store, at Army surplus stores to use for reference. In 2011, peer war comics artist Joe Cubitt said of Heath's use of real reference, said it sets him apart. He could illustrate mechanical things like rifles and tanks in a realistic way that few other artists could. He would build models of the things he would draw prior to drawing them, and his stuff would always come out right on the button. Other artists used to keep what they called a swipe file, pictures of things they, would, they may have to draw someday so they could use for reference. Russ's work was so good, other artists used it as reference. And this is doubtlessly why he was contracted to draw the full-page ads for the 2D <laughs> Soldier Toys. We have to assume. In, in Absolutely, a, yeah. In a 2004 interview for the defunct blog, now available on ThorTrains.net, from where we will get much of our information from these toy soldiers <laughs> from here on, Russ Heath recalled, 
Yeah, the one with the revolutionary soldiers and the one with the Roman soldiers. The ads came in through the comic company. They'd say, his bosses, I got an ad here for these things. You want to do it? I got 50 bucks each for those. Wish I had a nickel for every time they used them. I'm wondering, is there anything that was printed more than that? <laughs> Russ never met any, actually met anybody associated with the companies that sold the toy soldier sets. Indeed, he never even saw any of the toys, though he was aware that they were two-dimensional. He said, no, I never saw them, those toy soldiers. You know, it's funny, I got letters, too, that they forwarded to me from the company, and everybody was bitching. They said, they're not three-dimensional, they're only in relief, the 2D flats. And it was really a rotten thing to do to the kids, he said with a chuckle. <laughs> it seems like Russ tried to present the merchandise truthfully. I tried to make, especially with the Revolutionary Soldiers ad, I tried to make them look somewhat stiff and like the soldiers' flats would look. He thinks that he was commissioned to draw these ads in the late 1950s or the early 1960s. Indeed, back cover ads for the Revolutionary War toys show up on Charlton and Dell Comics in 1961. And as mentioned, he got 50 bucks a piece for them. Uh, Heath said, I got 50 bucks uh, for two separate pages. A lot of people don't didn't know I did them because the client didn't want them signed. I did have a small RH in the lower left-hand corner of the Revolutionary Soldiers, and I don't remember about the Roman Soldiers. Then customers would blame me when the actual toys were not as depicted. I'd never seen the damn things because they were like a ba- was it bass relief? Bass so relief, yeah. Bass relief. Bass relief or whatever they call it. Uh, they're not fully formed, not three-dimensional. It would be flat things that were shaped a little, and the kids felt chipped and figured it was my fault. Uh, Russ Heath's RH initials do indeed appear at the lower left corner of all the early Revolutionary War ads. However, by the late 1970s, Lucky Products Incorporated had copyrighted the Revolutionary War soldiers ad and some other ads also. Somewhere in that process, the ad became slightly altered and was clearly recolored, copied over by a much poorer artist. In these later ads, Heath's initials were intentionally or not completely covered over by the little disclaimer box that states, Imaginary War Scene Shown. As for the Romans ad, Russ's initials were likely covered over by text boxes from the very beginning, if they were there at all, like we say, sure. he, he doesn't remember. About the recolored visions, versions of the ad, Heath said, that's true, they're recoloring. I don't know why. All the new stuff is colored so brilliantly. I mean, the colors are so intense, like dark blue is probably more intense than black is, which really screws things up. The original coloring in the ads were like the Sunday papers, and that's where it was supposed to be. I've seen some terrible examples of somebody splashing color onto it afterwards. That far back, nobody thought anything in the comic biz was that important. They'd say, splash that in there, that'll work. You know, it's only comics, for God's sake. We used to have an expression. Oh, well, it's good enough for comics. Uh, more about Mr. Heath. Uh, he was he often pitched in on her, Harvey Kurtzman and Will Elder's comic, Little Annie Fanny, for Playboy magazine. Uh, the comic was constantly facing dire deadlines that required all hands on deck. Mark Avanier told a funny story in 2010. One time when deadlines were nearing meltdown, Harvey Kurtzman called Heath in to assist on, in a marathon work session at the Playboy Mansion in Chicago. Russ flew in and was given a room there and spent many days aiding Kurtzman and artist Will Elder in getting one installment done of the strip. When it was completed, Kurtzman and Elder left. But Heath just stayed. (laughs) (laughs) And stayed. And stayed some more. He had a free room as well as free meals whenever he wanted them from Hef's 24-hour kitchen. He also had access to whatever young ladies were lounging about. So he thought, why leave? (laughs) He decided to live there until someone told him to get out. And for months, no one did. Everyone just kind of assumed he belonged there. It took quite a while before someone realized he didn't and threw him and his drawing table out. That really is hysterical. I love it. In a 2001 interview, Russ said that as an adult, he lived seven years in Manhattan, seven years in Chicago, and seven years in Connecticut, in the town of Westport before moving to California in 1978. There, he worked as an animator for Saturday morning TV cartoons and later did commissioned art for comics fans. Another rare example of Heath working on superhero material was his inking Michael Golden's penciled artwork on Mr. Miracle number 24 and 25, that was June and August 1978 cover dates. Heath and writer Carrie Bates launched the, a, the Lone Ranger comic strip on September 13, 1981, and it ran until 1984. His last comic book story was penciling and inking the four-page flashback sequence of the 22-page story, The Mortal Iron Fist, conclusion in The Immortal Iron Fist number 20, January 2009 cover date. He went on to provide cover art for publisher Artvark Vanheim's satiric comic book Glamour Puss, number 11 through 10, 
11 through 13, that was January through May 2010, cover dates. His last known published comics works was the one-page illustration that Russ Heath Girl number 4 appearing in issue number 19, May 2011 cover. He received an Inkpot Award in 1997 and was inducted into the Will Eisner Comic Book Hall of Fame in 2009. He received the Comic Book Art Professional Society Sergio Award in 2010 and the National Cartoon Society Milton Kniff Award in 2014. And Russ Heath currently lives in Van Nuys, California. Hmm. So he is still with us, folks. So you, if you want to harass him about those uh, 2D toy soldiers, you can go <laughs> track him down. Uh, I, I got to say, Chris, like even even then, though, I remember looking at them thinking these can't be, you know, fully sized and thinking it was still a good sure. deal. You yeah, I mean? absolutely. I, I, and I had no idea what I wanted to do with them. It wasn't like I was making a war dioramas or anything, but I <laughs> definitely part of me wanted, you know, I did actually have a bunch of army men. Uh, sure. But they, I think my parents got them from some slightly more reputable source. They were all 3D and, you know, they, they, uh, yeah, the it, crawling guy and the guy who had the base and see, we all loved the crawling guy because he didn't have the the base. <laughs> yeah. You see, he was the only one without the base. I liked him, and we liked the the machine gunner with the gun propped up on the uh, the the two prongs. You on ever the, have him? Yeah, on the on the on the standalone holder. Thing, exactly. Yeah. Those are the only ones that you feel like you could like actually like put in play with your uh, transformers and GI Joe without being mocked or whatever. But. Uh... <laughs> That concludes our uh, second stab at these uh, comic book ads, and uh, I have a great time with these, Chris. You know, this is just oh, yeah, kind of opens up a whole new world. Sometimes good, sometimes bad, but you know, it's just stuff that you never thought of while you stared at these. I would stare at these ads so long that I almost looked at them longer than the comics. I think sometimes. Oh, just, for sure, for just sure. Looking for any indication of the, of what the the grift was there, you know, what mm-hmm. the rub was, and uh, luckily I didn't buy too much out of the comics, but whatever I did, I was invariably disappointed. <laughs> but if you out there ever bought something from a comic, or perhaps you have more information about your experiences with sea monkeys, or with uh, toy soldiers, or if you've ever seen and read an issue of Grit mm-hmm. magazine in, like, not in the recent times, but in the long ago, Please write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic T-mill history. We're on Twitter at cosmic T-mill, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. You see our weekly comics writings at weirdsciencedccomics.com and Chris's daily writings at chrisisaninfiniteearth.com, where he reviews a different DC comic every day of the week. Still gunning for that 100 action comics by action 1,000, but you did take a diversion today. I did. To do damage, but not the damage some people may be thinking. <laughs> yes, I, I threw a little curveball in there and did uh, the damage from 1994 instead of the uh, New Age of Heroes. That's, that's the Christian <laughs> way that we know and love. <laughs> uh, now, also, we have our site here, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, which is uh, being updated multiple times a week now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have our our weekly uh, Cosmic Treadmill post every Sunday. Uh, we'll have our Weird Comics History post there on Tuesday, and then on a while now, we'll be putting up little box set collections, because even with our uh, chronological listing, it's still kind of hard to navigate. Sometimes, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. There have been a couple of hops. Especially when you, when you hit it, and it takes forever to load, because there's because there's like 90 uh, audio files in there. Yeah. So uh, we're collecting uh, our long-form discussions into single blog posts, so they're easier to, uh, to find and to follow. Um, and if you want to find us on YouTube, search Weird Comics History without spaces, all one word. Uh, and also check the show notes for applicable websites and more sources for the ads. That's right, as well as some pictures of the ads and maybe some other pictures. You know, I, I was able to find, like, a couple of covers of Grit. But really, mm-hmm. even, even online, Chris, almost nothing, right? You know what I mean? Nothing. You, you think yeah, there would be like a repository it. here, but no. It's like a Mandela effect. We all know it was out there, but it really nobody is. can. It really is. Nobody can oh, find a trace of. It. What are your grit closed down? Hundred years to this very day, kids. You know what are you? <laughs> they say the old Keller family used to run it. Anyway, uh, I think that's all we got for him this time, Chris. You got anything else for him? 
Um, like you said earlier, we have a lot of fun with these ads. If any, uh, if anyone out there has certain ads that hold a particular fondness that they'd like us to investigate or just chat up, definitely uh, let us know at that email, uh, that weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Absolutely, yeah. We definitely will pursue more episodes of this. You know, Chris thought of the uh, Captain O thing. Uh, oh, yeah, that that's a fun one. I, I had kind of forgotten about that. And there, there are plenty of other ones that just kind of leap to mind that we're going to have to get mm-hmm. into. But if that's all we got for him, Chris, I think I'm going to tell them all to keep it weird historically. Chunks be pulling up in caddies, knowing that car belongs to your daddy. Bumping the volume up in the speakers, where they blow, your pop's going to beat your butt. You're out of gas and still rolling, because your mind these girls are controlling. We should go around my way. And just like it's and you say, okay. You should have known you wasn't going to make it. Go for a tow truck, somebody takes it. Now you're stuck way out in Brooklyn. You're in deep the way things are looking. You can't get home because you live too far. Your cash and ID was back in the car. Now you wish you had driven your duster. But it's too late. You've been had by a hustler. <laughs>